I didn't know I had to give the announcements like 30 seconds beforehand, so during the prayers of people, I was furiously scribbling notes. I totally forgot to announce the uh, choir concert today at 3 p.m., so um, Charles, leave this on the recording, um, even though it'll be after the fact. I'm atoning for my sins. Uh, but yeah, hey, go. They're, they're giving a preview of the music that they'll be doing on their uh, tour they're doing in New York City coming up. So um, 3 p.m. in the nave, the Cathedral Choir concert. There you have it. Welcome back if you've been coming the uh, past couple of weeks. Uh, it's your first time, that's fine. Uh, I'm trying to keep these as standalone as possible. Talking on the topic of heresies, and the um, this is part three of heresies from the ground up. This is from the Babylon Bee. Have you seen that website? It's kind of the onion, if you know what the onion is, of Christianity. <laughs> Couple follows their hearts, billions dead, and you have Adam and Eve in the garden. And there was no commentary at all. I was scrolling through and Holly's like, no, it's just the photo, the, the, the drawing, uh, which is even better. <laughs> um, but it actually kind of gets at what I've been trying to get at, at least last time and maybe a little bit today. Um, um, I'll close this since it is 10 after. Um, that is, I mean, Craig said that in his sermon, you know, I mean, really that's sort of the du jour sort of Advice, you know, just follow your heart. The answers are there. Well, let's talk about that. Um, just uh, say a prayer. Found this one. I love to pray the colics for these classes because they're really good. You know, I mean, I'm not that great of an extemporaneous prayer um, if there ever were a great one, you know. Um, but uh, I find the colics very helpful because they're so succinct and jam-packed of appropriate theology. Um, and so when I'm teaching, I'm often thinking, you know, what's a colic that maps up with what I'm trying to get across? And the one for the sixth Sunday of Epiphany, which we don't always get to, depends on how long the season of Epiphany is, is this. So let us pray. O God, the strength of all who put their trust in Thee, mercifully accept our prayers, and because through the weakness of our mortal nature we can do no good thing without Thee, give us the help of Thy grace, that in keeping Thy commandments we may please Thee both in will and deed, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with Thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And I'm sorry I'm reading from the screen. My, um, my screen on here is smaller for some reason. Um, but uh, And the, here's my scripture passage, so I'm going to have my back to you again um, for today. It comes from uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, where Paul is talking about the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God and the paradoxical nature of the way that God works to commonsensical human eyes. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, the word of the Lord. Um, this is one of those places in Paul's writings where he kind of says the same thing over and over again to really get at it from multiple angles. He's basically saying um, that the world, and we still do this, and there's good reason for sort of empiricism, for example, to arrive at an understanding of things. And we've, we've tried for so long um, uh, to try to arrive at, you know, if you take like a philosophy class or read a sort of philosophy of religion sort of book, uh, can we arrive at God through um, our wisdom um, by s- sort of thinking about it in terms of thought experiments or taking a look at the world? Um, and uh, um, we might come to certain conclusions that God actually views as foolish. Um, but the thing that looks foolish to people is actually God and his wisdom. For example, the cross, um, saving the world uh, through uh, weakness and death. Um, when everybody expected, you know, I mean, just look at Palm Sunday. If the Messiah were to come, you'd surely expect uh, exercise of strength. Uh, and so God flips the equation and works through weakness instead. And you can't really arrive to, through, to that through philosophical thought experiments, really. You can really only arrive at what Jesus Christ did for us uh, by, by it happening, by the revelation of it uh, and the retelling of that over and over again. Um, well, anyway, I'll get to that a little bit more, but I just want to give a, a sort of a summary of um, where we've been, and then I'll get into the topic today. Uh, which uh, is the theology of, uh, well, I really want to be talking about theologies of glory versus that of the cross. Um, But the first session, we uh, took a look at Fitzsimmons and Allison's book, The Cruelty of Heresy. And we're talking about heresy, and it's a charged word I understand, but I don't know what else to call it, just because historically that's what we've called these teachings. um, And that's what heresy means, is false opinion, false teaching uh, versus correct uh, teaching, which we would call orthodoxy. And again, that's a charged word as well. They've been tossed around. I said last time I've been called a heretic. (laughs) I've been called a heretic for what I thought was preaching the gospel, for preaching grace. I've been accused of antinomianism, which means uh, being against the law. And my response to that is, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you, You just obviously don't get it. Because all that I ever talk about is the law is full and complete and absolute and unachievable. And therefore, Christ had to come to uh, fulfill it on our behalf. And so, well, anyway, you know, I'm just saying that I've been sort of hounded down by the heresy police. So I know what that's like. Um, And so I don't don't aim to call anybody a heretic, really, as much as I just sort of want to talk about this topic because I think it's so helpful for understanding the message of Christianity and for reading the Bible, uh, a sort of a helpful uh, tool to have uh, when, when coming at the Bible. Um, and so uh, what Fitz talks about in his book is that there are all these different um, um, categories of ancient heresies, and there all are no new heresies per se. I mean, we're just, if we call it something else nowadays, it's, it's basically, we've seen it before. Uh, maybe the people were different, the time was different, they wore kind of different clothing, but it's still quite similar. And he boils it down to two different categories, adoptionism on the one hand and docetism on the other. And adoptionism was a teaching that Jesus Christ was not the eternal word of God, 
but was a, a man, a young man, a boy, uh, born of Joseph and, and Mary. And uh, at the age of about 30, uh, he had sort of fulfilled all righteousness in the sense that he was the most perfect human who had ever lived. So at his baptism, God adopted him through the Holy Spirit and became a very divine person, but not a part of the Trinitarian Godhead. Um, and so that's why it's called adoptionism. And an adoptionistic thinking lends itself towards moralism when it comes to the human equation, because what that's kind of saying is, well, you know, that uh, we, we ought to follow Christ's example in terms of earning his merit before God. Uh, that's why he was adopted, um, um, because he was the, the most righteous. Um, and uh, it totally misses the point of why why the word of God took on human flesh and lived a life and still has that uh, human nature with him up in heaven. Um, and so that's adoptionism, which lends itself to moralism or legalism. And docetism was a teaching that um, uh, Christ uh, was divine, but did not actually die on the cross. Um, that uh, it was, comes from a sort of um, ancient... Uh, sort of understanding of the world that could not fathom that God could suffer. Um, and so uh, the cross historically happened. There are, there's enough evidence for that. So what happened there? Uh, well, it just seemed, that's where the word docetism comes from. Docetic means for something to seem. It seemed like he was suffering. Um, and so when he was up there on the cross and bleeding and going through all the agony and, um, um, and talking about his separation from God the Father, he was putting on a show. Um, but he wasn't actually suffering. So it turns it into a sort of either an object lesson or what really docetistic thinking is one of escape, escapism, to, to get out of suffering. And I do this all the stinking time, right? You know, I mean, I just, I don't like to, I mean, you don't either. You know, I want to pull the ripcord all the time and I'm not a persevering person. And so dispositionally, I tend to be docetic more than adoptionistic, maybe you're on one end or the other. That's a good sort of, we could create that sort of alternate to the Myers-Briggs, you know, where are you on the heretical scale um, of these on the extremes and things in between? Uh, there are legalistic bones in my body, but I like, I think this because of, but dispositionally I'm an introvert and so you know, I'm always trying to get away. <laughs> I'm always trying to get away from people because uh, they're in my way, you know. Um, so that was the sort of boiling down. And then last time to fast forward, and I'm talking about ground up because rather than talking about this in a heady, abstract uh, way, although we'll, we'll, we grapple with those things, I'm trying to think about what's happening on the ground now, really. You know, what do these things look like now so that we can... Um, find the categories of ancient heresy helpful for looking at the world with sort of clearer eyes. Um, and a, a study came out about 10 years ago or so, a longitudinal study which um, interviewed, surveyed, interviewed both over the phone and then more in-depth uh, sampling interviews face-to-face -face with th uh, 3,000 teenagers. Um, uh, to understand American teenagers from all different backgrounds racially, socioeconomically, and spiritually, to understand what they called their spiritual and religious lives. And they said, generically, the faith of um, 
teenagers, as they did the analysis, um, tends to look like something they termed moralistic therapeutic deism. And now, like I said last time, nobody's going around saying, I go to the church of MTD. Uh, it's just a, it's a, it's a helpful framework for understanding not only the sort of de facto religion um, of teenagers, but where are they getting this stuff? Well, this is just sort of in the air in America. And uh, I mean, they're, they're catching it from us, the adults. Uh, and so the, the creed of moralistic therapeutic deism goes like this. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people to go to heaven when they die. I mean, maybe you've heard talk like this. People tell me all the time, and I think in my head, and I don't only say it out loud about a third of the time, well, I'm a good guy, or he's a good guy, and I go, well, if there ever were one. <laughs> because, I mean, you know, in order to sort of understand Jesus Christ and what he did and why that intervention was needed, you have to understand that human nature evenly spread through original sin, uh, we're all, we all are bad. We're all bad. There is no such thing as a through and through good guy. I mean, maybe you're nice on the surface, but we're really whitewashed tombs. And, uh, and, but this, te so this teaching might sound nice to you, but it's actually the opposite of uh, what uh, we understand about the Christian uh, faith. Um, and so the God who exists, who created the world and watches over human life is a sort of a deistic God. This is sort of uh, quintessential deism. The first mover who's just kicking back somewhere far off in the distance, but isn't particularly involved in our life. Uh, except for when we call upon him uh, in times of need, perhaps. And it turns God into what they call the divine butler, uh, or you might have heard it as sort of like the ATM God. You know, I go to God when I need a withdrawal. Uh, but other than that, I sort of don't want God involved in my life. Well, what do you make sense of a God who took on human flesh and walked around earth? And, uh, I mean, that's, that's a God who's particularly involved with your life and human nature. Um, but so that's those two are, are quite related, therefore, and uh, and then uh, and then these two are quite related, two and five. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. And therefore, good people go to heaven when they die. And the sort of the question that's begged is, well, most people are basically good, so most people basically go to heaven. There are just a few who are evil, and we can all kind of agree on the sort of Hitlers of the world are are, are there and. In, in hell, um, uh, but uh, but that means that we bring something to the equation, and through sort of moral improvement, behavior modification, um, we can become better and better, and sort of um, earn our love, God's love for us through that, and therefore merit um, uh, our ability to go to heaven. And then uh, number three is. Um, the therapeutic part, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And you hear this kind of stuff all the time uh, nowadays, um, you know, to think that that's really what God wants for you. God just wants you to be happy, you know, um, as long as you're happy. What is, what was the, who was it that said, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad? What, what was the song? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Is that Sarah McLaughlin? 
uh, if, it, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Well, um, <laughs> let's let's take that to its end. Um, but uh, so anyway, there you see it. There's the sort of moralistic, therapeutic, deistic teaching there, and it there there are semblances of things like adoptionism and docetism in here. I hope you can see. Um, uh, there, there, this isn't uh, this isn't necessarily strictly adoptionism or strictly docetism. It has elements of both, and also brings into the equation a God that's removed from the equation. Um, and so that's where a lot of people are these days. Uh, I'd, I'd gather, I guess, a lot of people sitting in the pews on Sunday kind of common. That's what uh, people believe. And then we preach uh, a message that kind of goes against the grain. Um, and uh, I'd say that the framework that um, at least the clergy here share at the Advent is, uh, is uh, an attempt to be theologians of the cross versus theologians of glory. And... Uh, that distinction was made, uh, was clarified by uh, a man named Gerhard Ferdi, who's now dead, who is a Luther, Lutheran scholar. And, but it comes, that language comes from Martin Luther. Um, and in this book on being a theologian of the cross, uh, Ferdi, which is spelled like Ford with an E, F-O-R-D-E, uh, he, in about 115 pages, exposits the theses of what was called Luther's Heidelberg Disputation in 1518, which is one year after his 95 theses that he nailed to the, the church door. Now, those 95 theses have some similarities. The thing that's interesting about the Heidelberg Disputation, and, the, and this was common, I guess, back then, where they would have an... I mean, a disputation meant that he brought these theses to... Um, a sort of forum, and they were just pithy statements, and they were held up for disputation, for debate. Um, and he, at this point, is debating the sort of operating procedures of medieval Roman Catholicism and directly attacking the Pope, uh, especially with the 95 Theses. And so this is just in the um, sort of coattails of that. But the thing about the Heidelberg Disputation is it's much more succinct, it seems to be much more well thought out and uh, more broadly based than the 95 Theses, which were really trying to attack the idea of indulgences, which is really another way of saying meriting our, work, uh, meriting our worth before God, uh, and, and that came uh, through papal authority. But the Heidelberg Disputation... Basically, um, uh, as Faraday says in his exposition of it, is there are two stories of the way the world works. Either you're a theologian of glory or you're a theologian of the cross. So he says there's the glory story and the cross story. Now think back to uh, what I read to you from Paul in 1 Corinthians. Um, uh, you could say that the cross story looks like folly to the world, and the glory story looks like wisdom. And these things are difficult to understand because they're paradoxical. It's kind of like listening to a double negative. You're like, wait, huh? You know? Um, but, uh, but, but God works through the... It's a stumbling block. You know? It's fo folly and a stumbling block. So you have to really kind of meditate. And I commend, like, listen, after the Bible, uh, as long as I'm here, 
if you're like, Matt, is there a book that you would recommend I read? Read this one. I mean, if I recommend any other book to you, ignore that if it's not this one. You know, if you're going to buy one, it's 115 pages. Read it like three times because it's like something you honestly have to meditate on because it's so densely packed. Um, but uh, so anyway, there, there it is. And I'm going to read to you a, a portion of the book, which is one of the, it's toward the beginning where he uh, lays out a sort of explanation of the difference between being a theologian of the cross and a theologian of glory. And maybe if you're with the spouse, uh, share. I think we might have enough, but if you're willing uh, to share with someone, and then we'll see what we've got at the end. Everybody covered? Stacy needs one if we... <laughs> Excellent. Perfect. Um, okay, so well, this is um, uh, from the book, page 15, in Introductory Matters, uh, and, and you'll see that uh, after that, that uh, block quote, the paragraph starts to sum up. Now bear with me, it'll probably take about, I don't know, seven minutes to read all this. Um, to, uh, so, so remember I said there are two stories, the cross story and the glory story. To sum up, the two stories uh, with the two resultant ways of being a theologian are indicative. And by the way, let me just sort of pause, sorry. Everybody's a theologian. You've got to take that assumption here, okay? And we're not talking about a rarefied air of the ivory towers of academia. Everybody, as long as you think about God, that's what it means. The theology means the thinking and pondering God. So we're all, with his language, theologians. You tracking with me here when he's using that? The, uh, to sum up, the two stories uh, with the two resultant ways of being a theologian are indicative of two quite different perceptions of Christian faith and life. The theologian of glory searches endlessly for escape hatches, for a way to glory enticing enough to attract the free will, or what is left of it, of the seeker. I use the analogy of addiction throughout the book in the attempt to demonstrate the difference between the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. The theologian of glory is like uh, one who considers curing addiction by optimistic exhortation. The theologian of the cross knows that the cure is much more drastic. Luther virtually invites this analogy of addiction in the proof for his thesis 22 of the disputation, when he likens the theology of glory to the thirst for money, or wisdom or power, and so forth, and declares that the soul's insatiable thirst for glory is not ended by satisfying it, but rather by extinguishing it. A theologian of glory attempts, and I'm sorry, I don't know what this says at the top there, my sticky was in the way, something, uh, by optimistic appeals, that is by the law. But what happens thereby is only a reinforcement of one's uh, illusions about oneself. The supposed optimism of the theology of glory turns against itself. When the addict discovers the impossibility of quitting, self-esteem plummets. The addict tries to hide the addiction and puts on a false front. Superficial optimism breeds ultimate despair. And so I'll just pause. Remember, the attack is on uh, being a theologian of glory. Now, it sounds like positive, right? So again, that's where this sort of 
kind of paradoxical thinking as um, the attack is on uh, on being a theologian of glory and not of the cross. Um, And he sets up here a paradigm of addiction and a helpful way of understanding um, theology of glory is it either looks for escape hatches, docetic, it's both docetic in that regard and adoptionistic in that it's moralistic uh, because it has a lot of hope and human flourishing um, and, and, and making muster. And so, for example, if you might think of an addict, maybe if you've gone through recovery or know someone, most of us have, you can't, you can't sort of cheer them up into it. You can't harangue them into it. They have to have a sort of death um, and that's why it's, uh, that first page says, uh, thirst for glory is not ended by satisfying it, but rather by extinguishing it. And, um, and so it, it requires like what's called a rock bottom experience where one is like, oh my gosh, like I'm at the end of my rope. Uh, my friend John Zoll, um, says God's office is at the end of our rope, um, and, um, but the theologian of the glory doesn't get that. And often I run into people with severe addiction who are still theologians of glory and it looks like they're bottoming out, but I know they're not because they say, just taking it day by day, um, uh, doing the best I can, um, I'm having a lot of success, uh, versus, you know, what's the, the first uh, step in, in the 12 steps? Like, uh, accepting my powerlessness. You know, uh, it, it, it's just an admission of guilt and weakness and, and needing a help from a power outside of myself. They use the language of a, a higher power. Uh, you know, you might say God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Um, and so anyway, th- th- that's a sort of, uh, s- sorry to have a lengthy interlude there. Um, but uh, so this is where it really gets helpful, where he sort of sets up a really good illustrative distinction between a theology of glory and one of the cross. A theology of glory uh, works like that. It operates on the assumption that what we need is optimistic encouragement, some flattery, some positive thinking, some support to build our self-esteem. Theologically speaking, it operates on the assumption that we are not seriously addicted to sin and that our improvement is both necessary and possible. We need a little boost in our desire to do good works. Of course, our theologian of glory may well grant that we need the help of grace. The only dispute usually will be about the degree of grace needed. And so you might just think of grace as the power of God in this regard um, to help you out. Um, The only dispute usually will be about the degree of grace needed. If we are, quote, liberal, we will opt for less grace and tend to define it as some kind of moral persuasion or spiritual encouragement. If we are more conservative and speak even of the depth of human sin, we will tend to escalate the degree of grace needed to the utmost, but the hallmark of a theology of glory is that we'll always consider grace as something of a supplement to whatever is left of human will and power. It will always, in the end, hold out for some free will. Theology, then, becomes the business of making theological explanations attractive to the will. Sooner or later, a disastrous erosion of the language sets in. It must constantly be adjusted to be made appealing. Gradually, it sinks to the level of maudlin sentimentality. 
Oh gosh, that's um, that, that's uh, there's a lot going on there. Uh, both the, the, the setting up what a theology <laughs> of glory is and noticing that it has different characterizations depending on what kind of personality you are, or the type of church environment perhaps you're in, whether it's liberal or conservative. But still, it doesn't matter because they're both missing the mark. So in a very conservative uh, church, you might hear a lot of talk about the power of God and the depths of human depravity. Um, and a minister I used to work with um, would say things like, um, God does the 99%, but you do the one. He leaves the door cracked open with a little light shining in. He wants you to come in. God knocks at your door and you got to answer it. And I just like, my, my heart was like leaving the church, you know, because I was like, I can't, I, I, God does the 100% and, uh, and I do the zero, you know. And all I got to do is acknowledge that I do the zero. <laughs> and usually it's by God humiliating me. Uh, and, uh, and so what ends up happening is whether it's on the liberal or conservative end, I love this phrase, it, it ends up looking like maudlin sentimentality. And I see it all the stinking time in church environments, whether it's super liberal or super conservative. Um, uh, and uh, it, it just sort of takes on different uh, flares, kind of uh, kitschy. You know, I mean, that's what Babylon B is getting at. A lot of their, their attacks are on, on this kind of thinking. It's like, it's like they're theologians of the cross and don't even know that they are probably. Uh, but they're recognizing something ain't right here. Well, then let's talk about being a theologian of the cross. Um, gosh, I'm running out of time. I really want to get through this. We might not have time for discussion. Is that okay? We'll have one more session next time. I hope you'll come back because it really does pick up where this leaves off. I want to talk about the idea of works righteousness because uh, th that's helpful. Or words like Pelagian and semi-Pelagian, if you know what that means. That's, those are ancient heresies uh, too, and they're all kind of in this, uh, this department of the kind of language that was used for describing a theologian of glory. But let's talk about theologians of the cross, on the other hand, and think of Paul in 1 Corinthians in that passage that I read to you earlier. Theologians of the cross, however, operate quite differently. They operate on the assumption that there must be, to use the language of treatment for addicts, a bottoming out or an intervention. That is to say, there is no cure for the addict on his own. In theological terms, we must come to confess that we are addicted to sin, addicted to self, whatever form that may take, pious or impious. So theologians of the cross know that we can't be helped by optimistic appeals to glory, strength, wisdom, positive thinking, and so forth, because those things are themselves the problem. The truth must be spoken. To repeat Luther again, the thirst for glory or power or wisdom is never satisfied even by the acquisition of it. We always want more precisely so that we can declare independence from God. The thirst is for the absolute independence of the self, and that is sin. Thus again, Luther's statement of the radical cure and his proof for Thesis 22. The remedy for curing desire does not lie in satisfying it, but in extinguishing it. The cross does the extinguishing. The cross is the death of sin and the sinner. The cross does the bottoming out. The cross is the intervention. The addict slash sinner is not coddled by false optimism, but is put to death so that a new life can begin. The theologian of the cross says what a thing is. The theologian of the cross preaches to, the, to convict of sin. The addict is not deceived by theological marshmallows, but is told the truth so that he might at last learn to confess, to say, I am addicted to sin. I am an alcoholic, and never to stop saying it. Theologically and more universally, all must learn to say, I am a sinner. 
and likewise never to stop saying it until Christ's return makes it no longer true. And now just to press pause to explain what I'm about to read, is at this point you might say, well, that's really depressing. You know, that's really kind of um, pessimistic, kind of half, not even half empty, but like totally empty. (laughs) The glass is empty, you know, thinking, there's a new one. Um, uh, Yeah, are you a half full or half empty kind of guy? Well, the the glass is shattered. Um, and all the water is all over the floor. Uh, and so you might feel that way right now, but so where's the hope? Where's the hope? That's the, you know, where's the hope? That's the kind of question that leads into this paragraph. The theology of the cross is the true and ultimate source of human optimism because it always presupposes the resurrection. Uh, We should always bear in mind in pondering texts like the Heidelberg Disputation that resurrection is always taken together with the cross. The fundamental question of the disputation is how to arrive at the righteousness that will enable us to stand before God. Let me read that sentence again. That's how this book and the disputation begins. That's the primary question. How can someone stand before God? The fundamental question of the disputation is how to arrive at the righteousness that will enable us to stand before God. It is about resurrection, finally. And even when the word is not explicitly spoken, indeed, it is not possible to have a theology of the cross without resurrection. The powerful attacks launched against even the best of human works that put the sinner to death would simply not be possible if the resurrection were not presupposed. Some theologians of the cross seem afraid to bring in talk of resurrection because they apparently fear it will mitigate the uh, unrelieved tragedy of the cross and its attack. But the opposite is the case. Without the resurrection, theologians will always be tempted to tone down the attack in order to leave room for at least some optimism, some hope for the survival of the old self. They end by telling sweet lies, calling the bad good and the good bad. And that's really helpful thought about theology of glory versus cross. The theologian of glory calls a bad thing good and a good thing bad. A theologian of glory calls a bad thing good and a good thing bad. But a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. A theologian of the cross calls a spade a spade. A theologian of the cross speaks the truth. Um, and uh, uh, that, that you, to, to arrive at what that really kind of means, it's helpful to read the entire book. Uh, because that's kind of in the middle and it leads up to a lot of this talk that I've talked about leads up to that distinction. Um, but uh, just to give you an illustration of what this kind of might look like, I've brought in two videos from the secular arena uh, of what uh, a theologian of glory uh, versus the cross might kind of sort of look like. Uh, so there's no theological content per se in here, but just hopefully illustrative uh, for seeing it. So the theologian of glory might look like this. <laughs> win it, you know, win it. I'll make that shot. I got it. And then just don't, I mean, then life's going to hit you upside the head, you know, because you're going around, you know, I'm all over it, you know, half full, you know, positive thinking, winning life. How you doing? 
couldn't be better. You know what I mean? <laughs> but something's going to bring you to the ground. You know what I mean? And you're not going to be prepared for it. Versus a theologian of the cross uh, who paradoxically, you know, being a theologian of the cross means like, uh, it's really difficult because the world wants you to t- speak words of glory. You know, to go around being a, uh, a whitewashed tomb. That's what the world really expects. Uh, and th- I love this clip from this movie called uh, Office Space in 1999. There's one swear word in here, but we say it every year during Christmas season, okay? So just a forewarning. <laughs> it's not a four-letter word, but that's the only one. There's a lot more swear words in the entire movie. But uh, this clip is great. He's being interviewed by some consultants at his corporate office, this guy who's been hypnotized. And after his hypnotism, he didn't have a care in the world anymore. He's just, like, he's just walking around life like calling a thing what it is. And they're, they're doing these massive layoffs in his corporate office. They bring the consultants in and they're in, interviewing each of the employees. And when he goes in, this is what happens. Hi, Bob. Bob, give us a, go ahead and grab a seat, Jones, for a minute. See, what we're actually trying to do here is we're just we're trying to get a feel for how people spend their day. So, if you would, would you walk us through a typical day for you? Yeah. Great. Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, <laughs> I use the side door, that way Lombard can't see me, <laughs> and uh, after that I just sort of space out for about an hour. <laughs> space out? Yeah, I just stare at my desk, but it looks like I'm working. I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch too. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. Uh, Peter, would you... Be a good sport and indulge us and just tell us a little more. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you something about TPS reports. Uh, the thing is, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. <laughs> it's a problem of motivation, all right? Now, if I work my ass off and Intech ships a few extra units, I don't see another dime. So where's the motivation? Here's something else, Bob. I have eight different bosses right now. A big pardon? Eight bosses. Eight? Eight, Bob. So that means that when I make a mistake, I have eight different people coming by to tell me about it. That's my only real motivation is not to be hassled. Not the fear of losing my job, but you know, Bob, that'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Would you bear with me for just a second, please? Okay. What if, and believe me, this hypothetical, but what if you were offered some kind of a stock option equity sharing program? Would that do anything for you? I don't know, I guess. Listen, I'm going to go. It's been really nice talking to both of you guys. Absolutely. The pleasure's all on this side of the table. Trust me. All right, I hope your firings go really well. <laughs> Look how everybody else is dressed. <laughs> There's one great scene where he, uh, oh, he he has a cubicle and the cubicle wall is blocking the window, and so he just brings a drill in one day and like takes it down and pushes it over. <laughs> oh well, I mean it's not exactly the same, but it gives you an idea, hopefully an emotional idea of where this is coming from. The bells are tolling. I'm running out of 
room uh, time, but uh, next time I, I'm going to pick up because uh, well, this comes from Luther, and I recommend that book. But I, I, I want to say that um, that this similar kind of thinking exists in Anglicanism in a document that we call the 39 Articles of Religion, which is the closest thing that we have historically to a confession of faith, uh, you know, outside of the creed. But I mean, a denominational uh, confession of faith. Um, and it's tucked away at the back of your prayer book. If you want to take a look before coming in next time, there's a, a, a grouping of theses in the middle about uh, human righteousness uh, works and gets at it from different angles. And it's total theology of the cross versus glory kind of thinking. Um, and, uh, well, anyway, I hope that's helpful. Um, and I hope that maybe I've sort of devastated some of you. Really, that would be accomplishing the goal here. Go in, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you. Thank you.